You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 13. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. Uh, We're going to continue in our series, uh, which we have uh, been in the book of Genesis, which we have called uh, God's Story of Creation uh, to Restoration. If you are a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say uh, and not what I have to say. We come to this moment in our worship to continue to worship by hearing from God's Word. We call that preaching, and that is because we believe the Bible has something to say. And when it does say something, that means we submit our lives to it. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, my prayer for you is to see that this place is for people to experience the love of God and experience a place that is safe for you to ask questions and see what God's people are all about. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black hardcover Bibles in front of you and turn to page nine to follow along with us. The measure of a person is not what happens in the moment, but how they respond. The measure of a person is not what what they do in the moment, but how they respond. I I used to coach high school basketball, and if you don't know, uh, teenage boys are inconsistent, at the very least, uh, just a little bit. And some days they would be uh, ready to play, and some days they would be not in the right headspace, and they would need a little encouragement. But often what we would see uh, in those games is that adversity would hit. Adversity would come to our door, and there was an opportunity for these young men to respond to that adversity. It's an opportunity for them to learn how to grow, how to uh, accept uh, the truth of the situation, and then respond in the right ways. Oftentimes, we fail in responding in those right ways. I think you can probably think of moments this week where we failed to respond rightly. But the measure of a person is not seen in the moment, but it's seen how they respond. Last week, we saw Abram respond in fear. He he needs a bounce back game. He he needs something different than what we saw last week. If that's going to be the hope of Israel, then something needs to change. We get to chapters 13 and 14 this morning, and we see a very different Abram. We see a man who trusts God. A man who responds in that trust and in that faith. So as we walk through these two chapters this morning, here's what we're going to see. Abram is confronted with multiple challenges to the promises of God, but he responds in faith. Now, if you are a disciple today, if you call the name of Jesus, what should we do? What should we know? Very simple. Faith in God's promises enables us to live according to God's promises. Faith in God's promises enables us to live according to God's promises. You see, there's something that we base our response off of, and that's God. And that's what he has said and what he said he will do. You see, we, we have been saved by faith in Jesus, but that faith is never alone. That faith produces a life that recognizes and reflects the God that we have faith in. And that's what we're going to see here in these two chapters. 
Now, over the last two weeks, we were in Genesis chapter 12, a pivotal moment. Pastor Ryan, two weeks ago, uh, shared with us from the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 12 about the covenant that God is going to make with Abram. The promise that he's going to make with Abram. God said, I am going to give you land. I'm going to give you a great name and I'm going to give you a son. Only problem with that, Abram has none of those things. And he definitely doesn't have a son because his wife, Sarai, is barren. We pick up now in that story. Uh, But not only from that promise. You see, last week, Andrew shared from Genesis 12, 10 through 20, that showed Abram's fear despite the promise of God. But now there's a transition point for Abram. But remember, as I told you, as we started this book, we're going to be weaving in and out of will we trust God or will we not trust God? And so God's promises, now we're going to zoom in on his promise for the land. God has told Abram, I'm going to give you this land, the land of Canaan, for you and your children And now these two chapters are going to focus on that promise and the promise that this land will be to his family, that Abram will have a seed, he will have a son. So as we walk through this passage this morning, here's a couple ways for us to think about this. All of these challenges will be presented to Abram and he will have the opportunity to respond in faith. So three challenges, three challenges this morning. As we follow along, challenge number one, conflict, conflict. Look there, verse 13, or sorry, verse one of chapter 13. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had and lot with him. So Abram returns to the land that God promised. Egypt is behind him. This seems to be a new beginning. Verse two, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. Remember, he left Egypt with lots of possessions. Right? Pharaoh kicked him out, foreshadowing the Exodus, and he has a lot of possessions with him. Verse 3 He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, the place where, uh, between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built an altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. This seems to be a different Abram than we saw. Last week, where we, where we saw him in Egypt. Verse 5, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. Now the conflict will emerge. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. You've heard the phrase, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. Right? For Abram and Lot, there was no way they were going to get along. But why? Well, Halfway through verse, verse 6 tells us, For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Prezites were living in the land. You've also heard more money, more problems. Right, this is what's happening. The money that they, the possessions that they have received is something that is actually causing the conflict and the tension for them. Kids in the room. Kids, if you'll look at me for just a moment. What if I put 10 of you in a room back here and I I lay out two really important, really cool, the best kind of cool toys I could put back there? Maybe a PS5 or something. I don't know. Maybe I put that back there and said, there's 10 of you and only two of you can have them. How would that go? Not very well, would it? 
All right, so this is what happens between Abram and Lot's herdsmen. They're fighting over, we want this spot. We want this land. We want this uh, source of water. And they can't get along. The problem is that Abram moves back to this land because he believed that it would sustain him and his family, that it would sustain Lot and his family and their clan. But I want you to see how Abram responds to this conflict and how, in particular, his faith informs his response. So faith fosters peace. Look there at verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Since we are family, can we not get along? Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Since we're family, can we not get along? My dad used to ask me that all the time when me and my brother got into it. If we are family, can we not get along? But it didn't really work. Abram, he's seeking to make peace with Lot. What was the issue? The issue is the land. Abram has promised this land. It's supposed to be his, but he doesn't act in a, in a greedy, he doesn't cling to this in a greedy or jealous way. Instead, Abram offers the land to his nephew in an effort to make peace. Now, let me be clear. Abram is not doing this in some manipulative way. He wants peace with Lot. He wants Lot to be cared for. He he wants the best for Lot. Even though this land had been promised to him, this land is in God's hands. Now, Abram is the forerunner to what Christ would say in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Faith in God's promises fosters peace. God's people seek to make peace. We don't just seek to keep the peace. No, we seek to make peace because we have now been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's the only place that peace comes from. Abram did not try to keep the peace. He didn't try to come up with some idea and how they could be together. No, he says, you know what? You take the land. We must seek to make peace at work. Are you known as someone for making peace or are you known to be hard to deal with. Christians are known to be people who make peace. Kids, what would your parents say about you and your siblings? Are you to want to make peace or are you always causing trouble, trying to argue and fight and hurt one another? Now, let's look down at verse 9, and I want you to notice how Abram responds. Faith is going to fuel generosity. Look at verse 9. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Abram makes peace by offering the land by being generous. Faith fuels generosity. Abram's desire to make peace is now seen in Abram's true giving. Nothing was going to hold him back from making peace with Lot. Not even material wealth, not even the promise that God had made. Now, this isn't just an offer. It really cost Abram and his family. Look at verse 10. Lot looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was was there. Notice how in this part and how the land is described. Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This is a callback to Eden. This is the land that you want. This is where the water is. Can't live without water. 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So our, our, our ears should perk up here. Right, this is the watery land. This is where we can't survive, but there's an o- ominous note here. This is before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses wants us to go ahead and assume the rest of the story that we'll get to later in a few weeks. This is the first real-life example of someone walking by sight and not by faith. Abram was walking by faith. He was trusting that God was going to provide for him. He was trusting that God's promises would be fulfilled. And he still hands over his land. Look at verse 11. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward. Now, pause for a second. Remember that word east? Right? What happens when people go east? They're going away from God. That's not a good thing. Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and they went east. And they separated from each other. Verse 12. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain set up near Sodom. Again, verse 13, now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Lot doesn't stay with Abram. Instead, he moves away. He moves away from him and moves away from God. He lives near Sodom, the false city, one that looks good on the outside, but it's corrupt on the inside. It's false. It's rotten. Lot's sight deceives him. And you see, the thing is about Abram's generosity is he could have given this land away a hundred times. Why? Because this is God's land to give. So so notice here in verse 14, after, after all of that has taken place, after Abram has given away this land to Lot, Abram waits and God shows up and God does something for him. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, look from this place. Now, Lot lifted his own eyes up, but now God lifts up Abram's eyes. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. There's that promise again. So that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. Abram's generosity gave Lot the land, but God gives Abram the land back. Abram can be generous with his stuff, even the land, because he knows it isn't his. Abram had learned that his possessions were not his own. They weren't gained by power or a plan, but they were gained by God's provision. This allowed him to be generous, to be righteous and merciful in resolving conflict. To give it away because at the end of the day, Abram knows that this is all God's stuff. And if it's all God's, then it's all his to give away. And if God's going to give something, then we can be, we can trust him. We can have faith. We can be generous because it's not ours. We've just been stewarded, uh, been stewarding for a little while. Now, jump down to verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. If you'll notice, the the chapter started with Abram coming back to where he built an altar. And it ends now with Abram building an altar. The chapter bookends with worship. 
In the midst of conflict, in the midst of Abram responding faithfully, uh, trying to make peace and being generous with his stuff, Abram worships God. One pastor noted, Abram lives in tents but builds altars. Notice what he focuses on. His focus is not to build his own life, his own wealth, his own power. What he focuses on building, what takes time, is to build an altar before the Lord to worship him. It informs how we can be generous because the transient nature of our stuff, we know that it's not going to last. We know that this is all of God's stuff. It enables us to be generous with our things to provide for people, to care for people. We have an eternal security of faith and a permanent nature of godly things. And that may, yes, be things that God has given us, but it's not ours. We should be people who spiritually live in tents, worshiping God over all things, willing to move wherever he calls us, willing to give away whatever he calls us so that we can demonstrate faith in what he has said and what he has promised. So that we are willing to make peace in conflict. To demonstrate when, when life hits, uh, gets hard, we're, we're willing to say, you know what? I'm going to give it away for the sake of other people and for the, for the sake of God's glory. I'm, I'm going to give it away. Faith in God's promises will enable us to live according to those promises. Right? It's going to help us foster peace. It's going to fuel generosity during conflict. Now, Abram has resolved this conflict with Lot. But for Lot, the story isn't over. The story isn't over. Look there at chapter 14, verse 1. It brings us to our second challenge, confrontation. It brings us to confrontation. Verse 1 of chapter 14. In those days, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Eleazar, King Cataliomer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goyim waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma and King Shinabir of Zeboam, all as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Siddim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Ketaliomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketaliomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Aristoth Karim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shavith Katagarim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran by the wilderness. And they came back to invade in Mishpeth, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in the Hazazan Tamar. Now, if we just read those first seven verses, you're probably wondering what in the world is going on? How does that have anything to do with Abram? It's a great question. Now, I do think for you folks who are still having kids, except, except for my wife, this is, great, this is great names that you could use for your children. Um, we've already had that conversation this morning. Uh, great names here that you can use. So what, what is actually taking place here in these first seven verses? Well, there, there are four kings, and they're in charge. And there are other vassal kings who they're supposed to pay tribute uh, to them, right? They're supposed to take care of them. So for 12 years, these smaller kings pay tribute to Ketileomer and the other kings. Now, um, if you were born in the 90s, you probably remember this movie, A Bug's Life. You probably remember A Bug's Life, right? The, the ants 
are, uh, they live and they, they gather all this food and, you know, they look really cool. And then about 15 minutes into the movie, you see the terrible grasshoppers. They come in, they're bigger, they're stronger. But what do they say? You give us food and we'll protect you. That's basically what happens here. The Kelly Omer and the king, hey, we're bigger and stronger and better. We'll protect you if, if you pay tribute to us. But, like the ants, they said, no, we don't, we don't want to do that anymore. We, we, we don't want to pay tribute to you. So, they stopped. And the four kings, they said, nope, we're not having any of that. And we're going to come in and we're going to take our stuff back. And so the four kings now are going to fight five kings. But I want, I want you to notice something really important here. These four kings aren't some JV squad, right? These four kings are legitimate kings who are strong, powerful, and mighty, right? So you might remember King Amraphel of Shinar. If you remember Shinar, who was his first king? Nimrod. Nimrod was the one who God said, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. This dude is a real dude. He is the guy that you don't want to mess with. And so his son, maybe grandson, King Amraphel is in his line. He's a hunter, right? King Arioch means mighty lion, right? Then you have title of Goim. He's the king of the nations, right? He's so powerful that he is not just king of one nation. He's king of multiple nations. They are, they are some of the worst kings, some of the, the, the biggest and baddest kings there are. And notice, they take out some big players in the land, right? The Rephaim in verse five are the giants that the Israel will come up against when they go into the land with Joshua, and it describes his bed, it's 13 feet long and made of iron, right? These are giants that these kings, they come in and they wipe them out. They're not to be messed with. Now notice, these four kings, they destroy everything in their way. They systematically destroy all of those that were living in their way. And here's the thing, they're just destroying people on the way to the kings, they're coming through the promised land. If you notice how it's described, they're not coming against just, hey, these are kings in the promised land. No, I'm going to wipe you out on the way to the people that have rebelled against us. That's how, that's how terrible the nature is of this battle. Canaan is ransacked because of this. Now you might, you might ask, well, how does that have a confrontation with Abram? I want you to see that sin leads to captivity. Remember where Lot is living. Where is Lot living? Lot is living near the land of Sodom. So look at verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Siddim Valley against King Ketaleomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goim, King Amraphel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now, the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits. Now, pause for just a second. These asphalt pits were the same pits of tar that was used to build the Tower of Babel. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. Now, this is a hard word to translate. I actually don't think uh, from the, the evidence, I don't think they fell into the pits. I think they hid in the pits. I think the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were like, you know what, we don't want any of this. So, so they hid like cowards. Look at verse 11. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. And notice verse 12. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was now living in Sodom 
And they went on. Lot is taken captive, but also notice he's not just living outside the land of Sodom. He's inside the land. If he had not walked by sight and had walked by faith, if he had not gotten cozy with sin, he might not have been taken captive in this situation. Sin always leads to captivity. There's a question that some people have asked before. Is it slavery if I get what I want? And that's what sin wants you to think. That's exactly what it wants you to think. It's slavery. It's not freedom. Sin wants to take over us. When we get cozied up to sin, it's going to take over our lives. You've heard the phrase, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever want to pay. Lot had gotten cozy in this land, and now he's taken captive. But there's one bright spot in the story. Look at verse 13. One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, and the brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. Somebody gets away. I don't know how. Somebody gets away. They go and tell Abram. Abram hears the news. How does Abram respond? Faith leads to courage. Right? Sin may lead to captivity, but faith leads to courage. I want, you, I want to be clear here. Abram goes to war for his nephew, right? Genesis depicts Abram as the saving hero in this story. But let's look at some of the important details. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, there are four kings. They got big armies. They're, they're people you don't want to mess with. And, and Abram, I've got 318 men. That's got to be a joke, right? Like, he's going to go up against these four kings? Verse 15, and he, now here's the thing, and he, that is Abram, is leading this motley crew of 318 men. By the way, he's 75 years old. He's leading them to war. And his servants deployed against them by night. Now, he was wise. He, did, he, didn't, he didn't fight them face on home. He, he fought them at night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, the north of Damascus. Right? Abram didn't just go to war with them. He pushed them out of the land. He chased them out of the land. That's some 200 miles. This 75-year-old man led this 318-man army and defeated these four kings. Abram's a hero. Look what he does. Verse 16, he brought back all the goods and also his relative lot and all his goods, as well as the women and the other people. Everyone is freed from these four kings. Abram trusted that God would protect him and he risked his own life to get Lot back. This was an astonishing, amazing victory. There is only one explanation for this and we're gonna see this in just a few moments. Abram is clearly experiencing the outworking of God's promises. Now, let me be very clear. We live in the 21st century of our Messiah. We don't fight wars physically. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Abram is courageous to go to battle for his nephew and for those who have been taken captive. He trusts the promises of God. 
when we trust the promises of God and have faith in him, we can have courage too. But courage to do what? Courage to share the gospel, even though we may be rejected, even though people may, may laugh at us. People actually may not be our friends anymore. We may not get invited anymore to the, to the, to the hangout. We not, may not be uh, able to talk to them at work because we've shared the gospel. But we have courage because God is faithful to his promises. That even though we may be rejected here, he will ultimately be vindicated. We have courage to live holy lives. Courage to live differently despite what our culture says is acceptable or even celebrated. Kids and teenagers, you in the gospel, you are now encouraged. You now have courage to live a different life because God has done what he said he would do. That in Christ, now we are empowered to live different lives. And it takes courage to live that way. It takes courage to live differently. We now live in a moment of time where it actually may cost us something to live for Jesus and to be different than what the world thinks is best. But it's also courage to stand up to people. Kids in the room, you've seen bullies. You've seen people be picked on. And instead of cowering back, we now have courage to, to love others, to love them and treat them like Christ treated us. Right? It's courage, adults, when you're working a job and you see your boss is he's got some unethical business practices and he's taking advantage of people. It's, it's an opportunity for you to have courage to stand up to someone even your boss, for the sake of the gospel, to, to love God and to love neighbor. This is what courage looks like. This is what, how courage can manifest itself in our own life. We once again see how faith in God's promises enables us to live according to that. That faith leads us to be courageous because God is working. Now, there's one last challenge for Abram. One last challenge. And that challenge is going to be choices. He's got two choices. The question for us is how do we choose uh, God's promise of, of holiness and discern God's working? How do we actually figure those things out? How do we know what God wants us to do? Abram's just come off an amazing victory. Probably on cloud nine. Thinking of what just happened. He's probably like, hey, look, I'm that guy. Like, I, I'm ready to go. I can, I can do anything now. How will he respond? Look at verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheba Valley, that is the king's valley. The first king to come meet Abram is the king of Sodom. All right, we don't get his name, and I think that's important because Moses wants us to understand the king of Sodom, Sodom means burning like hell. This is, he is the king of the burning land. This isn't a place you want to be. This isn't a king you want to be with. But there's another king that comes out. Verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest to God most high. Now let's pause right there. Melchizedek is an interesting character in this story. He's only mentioned three times throughout the Bible. Here. Psalm 110 and Hebrews 6, 5, 6, and 7. We don't know much about him. Well, here's about what we do know. 
Psalm 110, and Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek is a priest king. He is the first priest king in the line of the Messiah. He is someone who is really the opposite of the king of Sodom. So we could not have more of a contrast, right? The king of burning versus the king of righteousness. Literally, Melchizedek's name means uh, king and righteous. That's what his name means. And on top of that, Salem means peace. The king of righteousness and peace. That's who Melchizedek is. And he's a total contrast to this king of Sodom. Look at the different interactions too. Look at verse 19. He, that's Melchizedek, blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. Right? He, this king of righteousness comes out and he says, hey, great job, Abram. You've done a great job. All I've got to offer you is bread and wine. That's all I've got for you. But look at the king of Sodom in verse 21. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. What a negotiator. No appreciation, no gratitude. Hey, Abram, thanks for, thanks for uh, setting us free. Um, you know, you take, you take the possessions. We'll, we'll take the people. No gratitude, just a bargain. So is Abram going to, is he going to respond faithfully? Is he going to respond to the king of righteous or is he going to respond to the king of, of burning, of, of wickedness? Verse 19 tells us what, what happens. And here's the thing. If we have choices in front of us, we have to do two things. Number one, we have to remember the promises of God. Remember the promises of God. Look at what Melchizedek does. He blessed him in verse 19. He said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. Don't miss this. Melchizedek is blessing Abram by pointing him back to the promise that God made him. Hey, remember, Abram, what God said he was going to do, he's done it. What's clear right here is that Abram's 318 men weren't the reason he won the battle. The reason he won the battle is because God gave him the victory. It's God's victory. And Melchizedek knows this. It's clearly God's victory. And look at, how, look at how Abram responds there at the end of verse 19. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is where we get our word tithe from. It's, it starts the pattern in uh, the Old Testament that this is when people give the first, the first tenth of their possessions. Now, the passage doesn't tell, tell us if he took the bread and wine. We're not really sure. But what he does do is he gives to this king, to Melchizedek. He gives to the king of righteousness. Right? Abraham understands, yes, he's won the victory. Yes, he has faith in God. He's done everything that God has asked him to do. But Melchizedek is his spiritual superior. And Abram says, I'm going to give to him. Right? Giving is always in response. See, again, Melchizedek says, this is your victory, that it is God's promise to you. God is the one who did this, not you. And in response to that, Abram gives. Our giving isn't to give or to get anything. Our giving isn't to be recognized. It isn't to make ourselves 
look good. It isn't so that God may bless us more. No, God had already blessed Abram. And in response to that, now Abram gives. That's what true giving looks like. That we are a people who have received much in Christ. And now why would we not give? Why would we not be people who give to the Lord? Not just give, but give our first and our best to him. Now, it's a misnomer that the Bible calls for a tenth from Christians to give. It's a good place to start. But the New Testament gives no number. The New Testament gives something more difficult. It tells us to be sacrificial and happy about our giving. It tells us to give our first and our best, which I think is here in this chapter 14. That tells us, give our first and our best. I think 10% is a fine number. I think 10% is a good place to start. But it's not the only place. But we're called to give our first and our best to God. Not because we want something. Not because we think that he's going to bless us. That's not going to happen. We've already been blessed in Christ. And so now we give. Some of you get paid once a month. Some of you get paid twice a month. We give the first out of our earning. And all of us are growing in that. We probably all give at some level differently. But may you be challenged this morning to give your first and your best to God. And we do that by giving to God's mission. So you see, this word Salem, yes, means peace, but it's also he's the king of Jerusalem. Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem, God's city. And so Abram knew that this king was, yes, righteous, but he's God's king. And I'm going to give to God's purposes. And so giving doesn't just take place in the world. Yes, yeah, sure, be, as I've already said, be generous with your stuff. But we give our first and our best to God through his mission, through his kingdom, which is the church. This is why we give. Because God is using the church, he's using you and me to reach the nations with people who have never heard the gospel. That is why we give our first and our best. Now, we remember the promises of God, which enable us to give, but we also remember the promises of God, and it will help us resist the power of the world. It helps us resist the power of the world. Look there at verse 22. For Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. I'm not going to take one coin not even one shoelace from you so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. So what they've already done, yeah, we've got to take that. But as for the share of, of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. It's up to them. They can have what they want. You see, Abram wanted nothing to do with the riches of the world. He wanted nothing to do with the riches of Sodom. If Abram took this money, it could have been said that this king is the one who made him famous, the one who made his name great, the one who made him rich. But that would interfere with God's blessing. Now, again, we have two sides of the same coin. If all of this stuff is God's stuff, then all of it can be used for God's glory. We see it later in the Old Testament, a king of, of, of a wicked nation gives money to uh, to God's people. We see Pharaoh give money to Abram and to God's people when they leave Egypt. It's all God's stuff. The question is the motivation behind it. Why would we be taking that stuff? Would we take it to think that this is what God 
This is how I receive God's promises. This is what's going to uh, give me security. This is what's going to make my life easier. See, Abram resisted the power of the world by remembering that God would bless him and make his name great. The enemies of God want you to think their power is better, their plan is better, that they're more equipped, that their promises are better, but their promises will fail every single time. There's only one who deserves our faith and our allegiance, and that's King Jesus. Jesus, who demonstrates what true faith looks like. We've seen what faith looks like when challenges arise, but here's the deal. We aren't Abram. Even if we were, the story is sandwiched between, uh, last week, uh, stories of faithlessness. And then in a couple weeks, we'll see more faithlessness. Even if we were Abram, it wouldn't help us. We will only be secured in faith by the gospel. Maybe you've never heard the gospel. The gospel is that that God sent his own son into the world. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life, sinless in every way. He met God's standard in every way possible. And that Jesus was then marched up a hill to be crucified. And the Son of God hung on a cross and paid for the sin of the world. That cross is where God's mercy and justice meet. Where Jesus is the one who paid the price that we deserve to pay. So that we could get his righteousness. He's buried. He died. But he was raised three days later. Which is why we worship on Sunday morning. And then, Jesus didn't stay here. He's ascended to the throne of God. He is the king. He is the priest who intercedes on our behalf all the time. He's the king that we give our allegiance to. He's the king who has purchased a people for himself. This is the gospel. And if you believe that, and you confess your sins before him, you will be brought into his family. You'll be forgiven. You'll be made righteous. You'll be enabled by his spirit to live out this faith. That's what the gospel offers us today. You see, the stories of Abram and Melchizedek are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yes, we see Abram and see ways that we can emulate his life. We see the king Melchizedek, but they they ultimately point to Jesus. Jesus is the one who risked his life, even to the point of death, For his relatives. For you and for me. Jesus is the one who who has the amazing victory. That he defeats death by dying on a Roman cross. There is no greater underdog story than that. Jesus is the one who gained the victory through God's power. And now we can live with him. But even before that, Jesus was offered the world by Satan. Jesus doesn't eat for 40 days. He's out in the desert, led there by God's Spirit, and Satan tempts him. And he says, I'll give you everything. I'll give you every kingdom, every possession you could ever want. And Jesus says no. Jesus resists Satan. He resists evil. 
Jesus is the true and final priest king. He's the true king of righteousness. He's the true savior of the world. This is what our Bible is pointing to. That faith in Jesus Christ enables us to live these ways. Not to receive blessing, but because we've already been blessed. And so church, may we walk in faithfulness, not because we're trying to earn something, not because we're trying to gain something, but because we know the king that we serve. We know what our king has done for us. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we ask that you would strengthen us, our faith. Would we remember what you've done in Christ? If there's any lack of assurance, is that we look back on what you've done in your son. We look back on what you have gone through to purchase us back, to get us back. God, would we trust you? I do pray, God, that you would make us a people of great faith to make peace, to live generously, to fight sin, to live courageously in the gospel, to remember your promises so that we can resist the world and its offer to us. May you help us, and may this church family be an outpost of faith for all the world to see. We ask this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.